It's the age-old question. What if you throw a party and nobody comes? Or worse yet, what if you throw the party and it's a bomb? Over the next few weeks, there are going to be rallies and fundraisers and events. So how do you get it right the first time? Because there are no do-overs. Now, we'll be talking with the best in the business about this, but you're also going to learn a few other things. Like, what if Prince had to deal with non-purple rain? Can you hear the sound of people clapping if they're wearing gloves? And how do you get a future president of the United States off the stage if he's running a little bit long? I'm Michael Sheehan, and this is Politics as Unusual. And don't forget, today's episode, as a matter of fact, all our episodes, are brought to you by FedEx. They're fast and they're affordable. So, we are in campaign season, where even a little event can be a big deal. Maybe it's a rally for the mayor or the congressperson or a governor, or it's a fundraiser in your home or backyard or a local hall. Heck, maybe it's even a bar mitzvah or a first communion celebration or a wedding. How do you make that event eventful? And to get some insight and practical advice, my guest today is the guy you got to go to. He's been, and is, the executive producer of events that you've probably heard of. The Tony Awards, the Emmy Awards, the Super Bowl halftime extravaganza, the Kennedy Show Honors, seven Democratic National Conventions, and even the Night of Too Many Stars. And I think we'll be talking about all of those a little bit later. I'm being joined by my guest, Ricky Kirshner. Ricky, thanks for coming by, man. Oh, thank you, Michael. Now, you and I met in 1992 at the Democratic National Convention here in New York City. That was your first one. That is correct. Did it both shock and appall you? Uh, you know, it was a, it was a crazy different experience, and the conventions have come a long way since then. Hopefully, I've had something to do with changing them. But in those days, it was uh, – the podium was built by a construction company that built apartment buildings and et cetera, et cetera. So it was definitely a learning experience. But um, it was also a political learning experience, as, uh, as I understand your podcast is mostly about politics. I went there. I'm a production guy. I think one of the reasons the Democrats like me is I'm a production guy. I don't know much about politics. I've learned a lot over the years. Not knowing much about politics <laughs> is the perfect entry into the Democratic Party sometimes. <laughs> you said that. I didn't. Um, <laughs> and I went to this first meeting of the, the group in New York in April. And um, it was a year before the convention. So uh, it was April uh, the year before. And Ron Brown was speaking. And right. they didn't even have a candidate or a nominee or anything. And George Bush's approval rings like in the 80s or some crazy number and ron brown is going we're going to win this thing we're going you know and and all the democratic kids are screaming and yelling i'm looking at everybody going these people are out of their minds there's no chance now before we get deep into the event stuff there is something that i've imposed upon you before to talk about and that's your dad Oh, okay. Your dad is the legendary, was the legendary Don Kirshner. And for those people who may not be familiar with, there may be three or four out there. I mean, his impact on the world of popular music, just spectacular from the second half of the 20th century to when he passed. I just read that he actually had an office in the Brill Building. It, it, actually, his office wasn't in the Brill Building. It was uh, next door. But he had a lot of writers and things in the Brill Building, a lot of connection with the Brill Building. And um, 
although you might think everyone knows who he is, anyone under our age really has no idea who he is. People our age grew up and saw Don Kirscher's rock concert Friday or Saturday night when they were getting drunk or high with their friends. But, uh, you know, kids like Brendan the intern have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> well, let's just say he was the guy, one of the prominent guys in rock music and rock and roll. Now, there's something I've sort of tweaked you before in the past, if you don't mind, one more time. Your stories about your dad and his relationship with the monkeys just always well, just gets to me. Some, some of the relationships weren't that good, if you, if you ask uh, Mike Nesmith. Um, and others like Davey over the years was always great to my dad. And, um, you know, my memory is where I was a six or seven-year-old kid. And I really remember it from pictures of, you know, yeah. hanging out with them. But I'll say this about, you know, growing up with my dad and doing what I do now is being around talent a lot as a kid was really important to my development because now when I'm around talent, I'm not intimidated by them. I'm not like starstruck. I get Bruce Springsteen, I get impressed. But, um. <laughs> when you start to think of the idea of an event, be it a rally, be it the Tonys, be it anything that you want to put on, what's the first step? Because I'm sure a lot of people want to do something. We're in the middle of election season. They want to do something. What's the first step? How do you start? I think the most important step is why are we here? Like even in an election season, are we here to fire up the base? Are we here to raise money? Are we here to get our message out? There's a lot of different reasons to be here. You know, the shows I do now, it's pretty obvious why we're here. Super Bowl halftime, we're there to entertain and, you know, hopefully get a great audience. The Democratic convention, obviously, get our message out and fire up the base, Tony Awards, et cetera, you know, brought bring Broadway across America and honor some of the great performances and shows of the year. But I think most important, you got to figure out why are you there? Mm -hmm. How long ahead of time do you start to ask that question and then start to act on it? How long does it take? Well, the next Super Bowl is in February and we're talking about it. I've already been to Atlanta and looked at the stadium. We're already talking about musical acts. We're already trying to figure out how we build a stage and get it into the uh, stadium, et cetera, et cetera. So there's one example. On the flip side of that, the Tony Awards are next June, but yet the nominations don't come out till about May 1st. And until the nominations come out, the most we can do is get a host, deal with the set and some look issues, mm -hmm. but really the nominations drive it. So the show really determines the timeline. Right. One of the interesting things about some of the things you've been involved in are some are indoors and some are outdoors. Outside of the fact that, well, I'm in a football stadium, by definition, with very few exceptions, it is outdoors. Is there a preference for one over the other? Is there an impact the indoor-outdoors has on the nature, the quality, or just the feel of the event itself? I'd say... It definitely has an impact, and I'm not going to say it's negative or positive. It just has an impact. For instance, when you're indoors or even in an enclosed stadium, you can rig. You can rig lighting. You can rig tricks. You can hide some stuff. And certainly in an indoor arena or a theater, lighting becomes super important. Right. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, we did a Super Bowl. Super Bowl 50 was out in uh, Santa Clara with uh, Beyonce Bruno and Coldplay, and it was daylight. And a lot of the things we wanted to do, we would have wanted to do for a Super Bowl 50 and something of that magnitude, you just can't do because of daylight. Um, so you can hide a lot of things in an arena. So I don't think it's so much indoor-outdoor as daylight, not daylight. 
and you know outdoor not having a roof is an important issue. Yeah, one of the I learned that the hard way, or at least the interesting way. I did four inaugural addresses, obviously two for Clinton and two for Obama. And first, you stand the day before you stand behind the lectern and you just look out. And you're just scared stiff, number right. one. Just look at what's <laughs> going to be out there. But the real impact was the sound. When you're indoors, there's a reverberation. You sort of hear some of it back. You can hear the people. You can hear the applause. What I found freaky the first time we did the inaugural address, because it's in January, it's cold. Everybody has gloves on. Right. So you don't hear applause. You hear this. Mm-hmm. And you don't hear yourself because it's just shooting out there. And it can be really strange. It can be really freaky. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you two outdoor stories quickly. One is Obama and, you know, when we did in Denver and uh, (laughs) the first three nights, as you know, we're in the arena and in the middle of July, they called and said, we want to do this in a stadium. And after most of the staff packed up their boxes and stopped crying, (laughs) we uh, put a team together and, and went into the stadium. But my concern always was weather. It's always yeah. weather when you're outdoors. And it turned out to be like a magnificent day, as you remember. Yeah. And I, you know, I woke up that morning and we went to the stadium. And like, as you say, you go out and you're terrified and whatever. And Lisa, who worked with me, grabs me and she goes, just stop for one minute and look around. Yeah. Like, this is history. I'm like, wow, you're right. And the weather was perfect and et cetera, et cetera. But think about what would have happened that night if it rained. Mm-hmm. Now, go to the next step. The first Super Bowl I ever did with Prince, it was Super Bowl 41. And they told me for 40 years, it's never rained at a Super Bowl. <laughs> so you're fine. And I'm like, okay, well, I Kiss don't know. <laughs> and the first quarter, it was just, we knew we were in trouble. And the guy from the NFL calls me, goes, it's going to get worse. And you know what? It was history, Prince going out there in the rain. Yeah. So the weather can work for you both ways. There's a purple rain joke there that no, out of taste, I have... just left alone. <laughs> I just left alone. Right. And of course, in 2012, there was the possibility where we were going to go outdoors right. again. And uh, did you make the call? Were coming. There was a lot of discussions. I mean, we had already built everything and rehearsed everything. And, you know, the thunderstorms were rolling in and it just wasn't safe to put people out there. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of people being out there, it's the idea of crowd size. Now, I have background way long ago in the professional theater, and you always want a full house. You want it to look because it just has an effect. I think sometimes do people get a venue that's too big for what they're going to do or too small for what they're going to do? Is there a rule of thumb, something you look for? Well, yeah, absolutely. It could be too big or too small, but sometimes it's also driven by other considerations. Um, You know, Back in 1990, I think, I did the U.S. Olympic Festival, which isn't around anymore, an opening ceremony in Minneapolis in the old Metrodome. And we didn't fill the place. And, um, you know, we had a card stunt <laughs> for every country that came in. We would, you know, do it, but it doesn't look so good when the place there goes isn't that. full. Yeah. But that wasn't our decision. It was, you know, already this is the venue, so that's where you go. Yeah. In terms of too small, then it becomes sometimes a security issue. Yeah. So you got to... Fire marshals can be a little strict sometimes, can't they? You know, speaking of halls, there was that famous incident in 2012 where Mitt Romney during the presidential campaign was supposed to speak in a hall. Something went wrong, so they moved it to the local football stadium. And they tried to put everyone like on folding seats, like on the 50-yard line. But of course, every camera just panned the stands to show just row after row after empty seats. So I always like to err... 
I'd rather have it a little too small than a little yeah, too Yeah, too I mean, big. a lot of football, baseball teams get smart now, and they actually have retractable upper deck curtains, yeah. I guess. Yeah, that helps. Once you start to do that, then one of the calls you have to make ahead of time is, is there going to be an MC? Is there going to be somebody who sort of runs the show on stage? Now, during the conventions, we have, by the way, I'm not sure most people know the phrase, the voice of God on the whole, right. that you have an announcer. Right. But if you don't have an announcer, you need an MC, and you've been involved in a lot of shows that had to have masters of ceremonies. Right. What's been your experience? What do you look for? What may, makes you happy? What makes you nervous? Well, it's an interesting question. It's always something that comes up, and once again, why are we here? What's mm. the event for? Um, you know, we've we've had um, people have been suggested, and especially in this day and age, you have to be really careful that you're going to send someone out there on live TV with an open microphone. The discussions over the years of the Tonys, for instance, we've had some great hosts. We've had Hugh Jackman, we've had Neil Patrick Harris, we've had James Corden. And they were all kind of song and dance, funny, you know, whatever. And this year, we had Sarah Bareilles and Josh Groban, who are more singers, but mm -hmm. warm, friendly. And, and we really felt like for this year, we didn't want someone to come out and do a snarky monologue. And we didn't want someone to come out and, you know, try and be funny. And we wanted the Tonys to reflect the community in which Broadway is. Mm -hmm. And I think that they set the right tone. Now, on the flip side of that, you could go do a show, like last night, uh, BET Awards had Jamie Foxx, right? Mm -hmm. Funny guy, good singer, all-around entertainer. I didn't see the show, but I think that, you know, for yeah. that show, that's a good host. If I can just compliment your two hosts from the Tony Awards, the two numbers that were written specially for <clears> them. First of all, it just hit the heart of everyone who's ever been in the theater, the opening <laughs> number dedicated to the people who are not going to win, to all the losers, because there were more l losers there that night than there are going to be winners. And then the thing that no one has ever understood who's not been in the theater is the grind of eight shows a week. And right. they did a song about how tough it is to do eight shows a week. And let me tell you, if you're doing Hamlet or if you're doing Les Mis, that eighth show on Sunday, that is a bear. Yeah. And, you know, that was the genius of our hosts. And uh, Sarah Bareilles actually wrote the open with uh, help from Josh and a woman named Shana Taub. And um, it's so funny. I mean, we've gotten so many de in this business, you get a lot of demos, uh, demos or records that someone just on a piano bangs out and sings and they sing as poorly as I do. And uh, Sarah sent us a demo of the two songs that literally you could have put on the radio the next day and they would have been hit songs. It was Sarah Barella singing a demo and you're just like, wow. Isn't it depressing how good some people are? She's crazy. She's yeah. crazy talented. Now, those people are going to appear on the stage. And let's talk about that quote-unquote stage, that background, <clears throat> what people see. You know, it's like, how do you draw a picture? Where do I start? When you think of that idea of the backdrop, of what people are going to see behind the person who's up there speaking, what do you think about? And particularly for those people who may be doing a political rally where they don't exactly have a ton of money, mm -hmm. what's your advice about the backdrop? Well, a couple things. Um, I like to start with a sense of place. Um, I really believe that, especially in the award show business, a lot of people have gotten into let's get really – sparkly and cool and fancy and bright lights. And, and I'm like, well, where are we could be anywhere. What, what show is that? So like on the Tony Awards, we make it look very New York. It's got, you know, mm -hmm. sort of a subway tile feel to it, a brick feel. 
And when we did the Emmys this year, um, I really wanted a sense of place. And we built what was a replica of an sa outdoor soundstage as if you're on a studio lot. And then we used the uh, walls of the, of the sound sta stages for projection surfaces. And we had a red carpet and, and other things so that you really got a sense of place. And I do think that's important. Yeah. Now, when you get to a Super Bowl, it's a little different. But, you know, in this day and age, like I watch, I watch sports way more than I should. But a lot of the press conferences, which used to have a step and repeat as a backdrop, they now have LED because right. LED is not that expensive anymore. And so the sponsor name changes behind them and whatever. So even on a local level or a smaller rally, you could almost go LED right. if you want to put a logo up, if you want to put a message up, if you want to put certain things up. The thing you have to be careful about with any backdrop is what's sticking out of the person's head <laughs> in the close-up and the oh. wide shot. Have you ever you had know? a bad example of that? Um, or, or when I'm, you avoid I'm it? I'm sure in rehearsals. <laughs> we try and get around it. Yeah, but, you you know. spot it. But here's a problem with the Democratic Convention and, and other news-type events is we don't control all the cameras. Right. You know, Tony Awards, Glenn Weiss is my partner, is the director, and we control every camera in there. But you go to a Democratic Convention and you've got how many? 50, 30 yeah. news organizations with their own cameras, you just can't figure out every angle that everyone's shooting from. Yeah. One thing you did that was kind of stage-related up in Boston when John Kerry was the nominee. For the final night, the fourth night, you built an extension that went literally into the audience. So right. instead of a proscenium flat shot, he was out there. And you built it that night, that Wednesday night, and Thursday morning I came in just to look around to give the senator some advice. And I stood out there and I was just surrounded by empty seats. And of course I flashed, well, now let's put people in. Holy crap, this is scary. And I had this sense of, if you remember the movie, The Titanic, where Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate yeah. Winslet are at the mm -hmm. edge. I thought that's what it's going to be out there. So we had a little talk with the senator saying, just, you know, you're going to be in the middle of people. Mm -hmm. And it was freaky and he did a great job, but boy, it was scary. It was scary. See, Michael, your job is supposed to comfort them, not go, holy <laughs> shit. But thanks a lot anyway. And anything I can do to help, uh, that's what I'm there for. You know, Bill Clinton's the master, as yeah. you know. And, uh, yeah, sometimes he's gone long. Sometimes. But <laughs> we'll but, get to one of those later. Oh, okay. But, you know, by the same token, I've done a, a ton of speeches with him, as you have. And you usually get it before he starts, yep. so you can follow and you know when to cut to certain things. Right. And I've never seen anyone who will go off the page, like talk about something that's nowhere on the page, and come right back to where he was yep. on prompter yep. or in his head. It's an amazing skill. Yeah. A little later, like I'll talk about the one time that. he didn't get back to it. Oh. But ever <laughs> since then, I think he learned from bad experience. But, you know, the idea I wanted to get to is, especially on the conventions, and this does deal with local conventions and local candidates, that podium, that lectern, mm -hmm. almost becomes like an anchor that can drag them down. And outside of just having them walk the stage, that podium is just a tough thing to deal with. Well, a couple things on that. You know, and in a local environment, it's a little easier to deal with. But we've worked really hard over the years at the Democratic Convention to bring the podium down as yeah. low as possible. When we first started in 92 and 88, before I did it, which is one you did, they were way up there. Yes. And I remember some of the old Republican ones where it felt like they were talking down to the people. I'm not going to yep. use that word. And um, 
that felt like they were talking down right. to the people. And we really looked at that and said, we want our speakers to be down amongst the people mm -hmm. as much as possible. Now, that's driven by a lot of things, down as much as possible. You still need to get uh, ADA lifts built into it. You still need some way to come up from underneath. You still need some way to have cable management underneath. Right. So you're not getting much below six feet. Right. But they used to be at 10 or 12 feet. Yeah. So I think bringing it down to the level of people is an important thing. So when you throw in the two complicating factors on top of that, that of sound, that of light, if you told people who are really doing one of their events for the first time, which is the trickier one or which is the more important one, what should they be more concerned about, more worried about? Well, I, you know, I work with some of the best lighting designers in the business, so they're going to hate me for this answer. But I think... Audio is an important thing that a lot of people overlook. You know, it's called audiovisual for a reason, and sometimes we forget the A part of it. But um, I could go out and make a beautiful set. It'll look amazing. And if I can't hear the guy, it's useless. Yeah. I've just wasted all my money. Whereas on the flip side, if I have perfect audio and the message gets across, I could probably light you with one spotlight, and yeah. not a lot of people in the audience would know the difference. Yeah, that's true. I remember once in the theater we were doing a preview to a, a Broadway musical, and the light board went down. And the most that we could do for the preview was we could just light four general areas. So with a combination of all four or just three, it was enough to get through a preview. Sure, there are cheap sheets anyway. Well, what do they want? But if they couldn't hear, man, we weren't going to go anywhere. So Yeah, no, and it's an excellent point. There was a couple of years, like it was freaky, two years in a row, the Tony dress rehearsal, we'd come in the morning and the audio board wouldn't boot up, Ooh. right? We couldn't rehearse. Yeah. Now, if we had audio and the light board went down, we could figure out a way with emergency lighting or whatever to at least illuminate the place. Yeah. So One last thing about this before we start to talk about the people on the stage. Um, and I guess this is more about the halftime show at the Super Bowl and even some of the award shows. Do you think we've been locked in an arms race? The next one has to be bigger than the last one, flashier than the last one. Conventions? No, uh, well, uh, both conventions and award shows and Super Bowl shows. Super Bowl, you're probably locked. I don't think you can do a uh, acapella. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we've gotten to a, a big point on the Super Bowl, and a lot of it is driven by the venue how big you can get. It's funny, I can't name names. We were been talking about someone this year that I thought would be really interesting because people would say, how could you build a show around that? Because it's not a big sound and it's not, you know, heavy music. But um, because I do think you're right, at some point, A, we're going to just outgrow our venue. Mm -hmm. And B, you're going to run out of superstars. Right. You know, there's not a lot of superstars left. Yeah, but, you know, the one, I think, a highlight from the Tony Awards this year was the I'm very simple <laughs> number by the kids from Parkland. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, it comes back to something that I probably should have said at the beginning when you say, uh, you know, about an event, and I said, why are we here? I also think it needs to come from the heart and yeah. have emotion, and we... Uh, Obviously, a, a horrible reason to have them on, but the emotion and the and the feeling that they brought to the show was amazing. But I also thought you were going to bring up the band's visit, which in oh, the yeah. in the midst of tap dance and big numbers and whatever, two people relating to each other on the stage, and Glenn shot it beautifully. Yeah. Um, you know. Also, every show can't be. Uh, 
I can't do this up here because it's a podcast. Can you translate? <laughs> yes. He's holding his hand really high over his yeah. head. I mean, every show can't be up there. Like, yeah. you have to have some emotion. You have, to, and, and we talked about on, on Super Bowls, Lady Gaga, I know a lot of people only want to talk about jumping off the roof, but there was also that down moment where she's at the piano. Yeah. It's just her, and you can hear her voice. Yeah. And you can go, wow, she can really sing. Yeah. And you need to have all those moments in a show. We've been talking with Ricky Kirshner today about events and how important it is to have a team, a competent team, and a competent team that has a common goal. And you know, that kind of reminds me of FedEx and what FedEx does for you. Now the goal, the common goal between you and them is pretty clear. You want to get your package to where you want it to go, to whom you want it to go, and on time. So let's see if they have the team that can support it. Start at the beginning. You have to be given good packing material. And if you've ever seen FedEx's boxes and envelopes, you know it's not brown paper and string. Pretty good stuff. Then you have to have a place where it's easy to drop it off or they come pick it up from you. They've got that down pat. Then they have to pick it up, get it to the plane, sort it, put it back on a car, get it to where you want it to go. They've got you every step of the way. And by the way, I'll tell you a little secret. Many other companies that pretend to do this or purport to do this, they actually outsource steps of the process, not FedEx. Everything's under their control every step of the way. So when it's your stuff and you want to get it where it's going, to whom you want to get it, on time, think FedEx. It's affordable, it's fast, and their team supports you every step of the way. Speaking of moments and shows, those come from people, and for politics, it comes from speakers. There's always a surprise, usually a good one and a bad one, every single time. In 88, which was the one before you started to make the show better, we had Ann Richards, who just gave a dynamite mm-hmm. keynote that just sort of catapulted her. But this past one, probably Kazir Khan was the guy who stood out. Did I didn't work with him. Some of the other people did. Did you have any clue that he would have the impact that he ended up having? I'll, I'll tell you how much of a clue I had. Um, when I saw how much time he had in the rundown and I saw who was way over, I was on the headsets going, how, how much longer? Where, what's going on? Because time's always running yeah. in my head. And so I had no clue, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But he stood out. And I mean, that's almost a cliche, but the weird thing, and I'm told it happened kind of by accident, having his wife stand next to him silent. I know some people felt a little weird about it. I thought it made as dramatic an impact, a statement as anything she possibly could have said. Yeah. I mean, over the years at the conventions, a lot of people have said, oh, I have to come out with this one or that one. So it wasn't, it didn't seem odd when they asked that. Yeah. But you're right, it made an impact when it happened. Yeah, sometimes the way it looks backstage, you think, well, you know, that's fine. It'll be fine. But it gets out there and something happens. Yeah, or it's a security blanket or I'm not used to speaking in front of this many people. Now, every once in a while, things do go badly. Now, we'll talk about Not every once in a while. On every show, (laughs) something goes badly. But just from a speaker, since you mentioned it before, in 1988, uh, Bill Clinton was supposed to do the nominating speech. And we had a couple of rehearsals. We had one, went fine. 
Matter of fact, he left the rehearsal room with a really tight 13 and a half minute speech. And as you know, <laughs> there are, <laughs> you laugh already, there were rules because it was a nominating speech. You go too far over and you have to give equal time or commensurate time to the other side. So the last few rehearsals, he's not there. So I called over to the Dukakis campaign, asked everything okay? They said, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. Well, as you know, he went out there and started speaking, and he went out there. I thought, well, this is all fine. So I went into a side room to work with uh, uh, Lloyd Benson. Mm -hmm. And I came out of the rehearsal, and I looked up at the monitor, and Clinton's still on stage. And I thought to myself, I work fast, but I don't work Mm -hmm. that fast. So I got on the headphones, and there's screaming going on. You know, someone has to tell him he's got to get off. They're trying to wave to him. Nobody's, he doesn't see it. So I ran into the teleprompter control room and knocked on the door. And I knew the secret knock, so they opened the door. And I saw the teleprompter operator, and she literally was sitting with her feet up on the table reading a magazine. I said, what's going on? She said, he went off script 15 minutes ago. I can't do anything. (laughs) Well, I'm getting screamed. So I went to and I asked her, would you type in on the screen, please get off the stage now? She typed it in, put it on the screen, started flashing it. Unfortunately, CBS had a reverse camera (laughs) (laughs) and took a shot of us flashing that sign. So Every once in a while, interesting things happen on stage. Well, that goes you, back to you don't control all the cameras at a right, convention. Right. Of the stuff that's happened to you, what stuff did your life just pass in front of your eyes as it was happening in front of you? Look, you know, one of the reasons I do live television is the adrenaline rush. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't, I don't really have a lot of hobbies. Maybe I should <laughs> take one up. But so, like, the adrenaline rush of live TV is why I do this. Yeah. And... No kidding. I, I could tell you five things that went wrong on every show, and I've, even on ones I've won Emmys for and things like that, where everyone thinks it's a great show, and I leave there and I'm depressed, and my wife's like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot that goes wrong. But here's what the most important thing is. you got to keep moving forward. I, yep. I'm a big sports fan, as I mentioned, and you know, if you throw an interception, you got to come back out the next series. You know, you have a turnover, LeBron, or you miss a shot. You got to come back the next time down the court. Yeah. And more importantly, we're on live television, so we got to keep going. And there's some things that get out of your control, and yeah, you try and reverse them, and sometimes you can't. And then you got to think, what are we going to do next when we come back? And that's the only thing you can think of. And that's really good advice for those people who may be doing events, that something may go wrong. Something you will can't, go wrong. Oh, some, 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 <laughs> when things go yeah, wrong, exactly. don't show the audience in terms of the way you look, the way you sound. Just keep going. And at some point, stuff gets back on track. It may take a while. Your life may pass in front of your eyes several times. You may puke, and several people have done that. But just keep going going it's it's not only the audience though i mean you are leading a team right yeah and if the team sees you panicking that's it you're done mm-hmm. and so you need to be in control you need to know where you're going and they need to understand that you know where you're going and it's going to be okay yeah that's one thing that i've kept to heart in the rehearsal room and backstage when we're doing last minute fixes and stuff like that if you don't look panicked they right. won't panic. It's like getting on the airplane. 
if the pilot looks a little shaky, you know, right. I'm going to change flights uh, right away. Now, one of the things that helps that is, of course, rehearsing and running through stuff ahead of time. And we take it seriously at the convention. I'm sure yeah. you take it seriously at other things. But you once showed me something inadvertently that I just took to heart as a former theater person. You invited me to one of the dress rehearsals of the Tony Awards. And people are asked to come down, run through. But if they don't want to come, they can send a stand-in or you have a stand-in there. And the day I watched the rehearsal in Radio City, I was struck, and again, as a theater person, every British actor was there. From Daniel Radcliffe, this was several years ago, so he was a little younger, mm -hmm. to Angela Lansbury at the under end of the spectrum. The only Brit who didn't show up and I wrote you an email about it. I said, gee, it was so impressive to see that. The only person who didn't show up was Kate Blanchett. Mm -hmm. And you emailed me back to say she got off the red eye and she came in in the afternoon and run through it. Right. That tells you something, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, we've gotten way better at the Tonys. I would say everyone showed up this year at some point or another. Some actually came during the week. Uh, Sunday's dress rehearsal at the Tonys is an amazing thing. We have a lot of invited friends and uh, people from the community, and, and it's, it's, in some ways it's more energetic than the show. It's just amazing. But um, what people don't realize, even if you're a professional actor, is it's not, it, it, it's not about, oh, I know the words, I can read them, don't worry about it. It's the prompter's 80 to 90 feet away. Yeah. I don't know how good your vision is. Can mm -hmm. you see that font? Would you like a different font? Is it too fast when we're scrolling? We, we'd like to hear your cadence, you, you right. know, speech better than I do, but we want to hear your rhythm. We want to hear your tempo. We want to, because we, we want you to look good. It's not yeah. me. If you screw up, no one's going to say, boy, Ricky really didn't produce that speaker, right? They're going to go, Michael really doesn't know how to speak. Right. So you, you're right. helping yourself. And there's just, to me, I've always been struck by when you walk out there, just the look of it. It doesn't look the way you think right. it's going to look. The effect of the lights, the effect of just the people there. And again, this deals for people if you're just going to do a little local rally and have a couple of hundred people. When someone was not used to walking out and seeing a sea of faces, it can be freaky. So there, There's a reason you have a career, which is – no, seriously. I mean forgetting celebrities, corporate executives yeah. and, and um, politicians and others – it's we we've all took like public speaking in high school, but it's it ain't it's the same. Not the same. One of the things that came back to me last night was two thousand and the what was supposed to be the balloon drop, mm -hmm. which didn't exactly drop. And I remember uh, Don Mishner was he Don Mishner, yes, he was, and we had him on live mic because I guess we wanted to give a feel for reality and. <laughs> He was simply calling more enthusiastically for the balloons to be dropped every time on all uh, three networks. Well, here's the thing. Don Misher is on the Mount Rushmore of oh, yeah. event producers. He's done Olympics. He's done it all. He's literally on the Mount Rushmore. And the shame of it is people remember his career by that, and it's really not Oh, fair. you shouldn't have. That was a great <laughs> but, convention. It's just it's what happens. But, um, you know, for some reason— he was letting CNN listen to his PL, yeah. and he thought it was private, and CNN thought it was public, and yeah, not cool. Yeah, but he, all of the producers and all the directors, people have no idea. How many cameras do you control at the convention? Oh, at the convention? Mm. We probably only have 12 <laughs> of them or something like that. Only, only 12. <laughs>
Mm-hmm. How many at the Super Bowl? Well, Super Bowl, we only have nine of our own, but we have access to 20-something more from the sports guys. Yeah. Again, there's stuff you just learn. And sometimes the only way to learn this stuff is when things go less than well. Sure. And I remember, I think it happened in 88, because I asked to adjust it in 92. They did closed captioning for mm-hmm. the people in the hall, and they did it up on the side. Well, the way they were running it was you actually saw the text about five seconds before it came out of the speaker's mouth. So it killed every joke or anything that was attempting to be a joke. And even really good applause lines sort of got mute. So we had to change the timing. No, let's do it like four or five seconds after it comes out of their, their mouths. And there's stuff like that you can only learn when you're out there. And unfortunately, for people only doing one event, uh, kind of too late. Any other lessons learned that you've had for you know either the conventions or the Super Bowl or the Tonys? Oh wow, we could do hours on lessons I've learned. Um, I just think once again a couple of things. One, the team's the most important thing, yeah. and once again, sports is ingrained in my brain. But if you uh, Two things. One, you have to rely on a lot of people. You can't do this by yourself. And if you think you can do this by yourself, you're fooling yourself. So you have to rely on people down the line that are going to back you up mm-hmm. or get you to a place where you really want to be. And so that's, A, the most important. And, B, a good idea can come from anywhere or a good save can come from anywhere. You know, we've – over the years, we've had – People in our talent department come up with an idea. Runners come up with an idea. And it might be a germ of an idea that we've made into something. But you always got to be open and listen. And, you know, it's not only your idea that's the right idea. Right. Again, I'll go back to 88 before you came. Jesse Jackson went out to do his speech. And it was of some length. Appropriately (laughs) so. It's not a criticism. Appropriately so. Well, no one told us that he has an allergic reaction to air conditioning. And that it can affect his voice and he'll start to lose his voice. Well, that year, because it wasn't going to be in Atlanta, wow. in a less than a well-ventilated place, they had built an air conditioning vent, or at least a blower, in the base of the lectern that would blow a little bit on the speaker to keep them cool. Mm-hmm. We didn't think to tell the Reverend Jackson that. He went out, one of his people came panicked to us backstage saying, you got to turn that off because he's going to lose his voice halfway through the speech. So, of course, they shot the reverend very high, and one of the stage uh, managers crawled out in the middle of the convention with cardboard and scotch tape, taped the vent so we could finish the speech. Wonderful things you only learn out there. We were talking the other day about stuff, and you told me a really emotional story about something that went wrong at this year's Night of Too Many Stars. Well, what happened was we had a, a woman, um, and I'm sorry, I forgot her name right now, who's autistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she has a talk show, and she's interviewed like Channing Tatum and other people in her living room and uh, on, on the web, I think. And Stephen Colbert agreed to be interviewed by her. And we rehearsed it, and it was, she has an um, iPad where she puts the questions in, and they're very funny. Yeah, And she pushes a button and the, the voice asks the question because she doesn't really speak very well. And uh, Stephen and her were great in rehearsal and whatever. But in rehearsal, we never rehearsed that show in order. So we just did out of order, which is fine. Sure. And um, we do the show. And in the show, right before her was a number where we had confetti. 
And unknown to us, she had OCD. And when she came out and saw the confetti, she sort of had a break and could not go on. Mm-hmm. Once again, what do you do? You can't panic because you're now on live television. So we had uh, The Roots was our house band. Mm-hmm. And I said to Amir, Amir, just play a song. And those guys could play any song anytime in two seconds. So they start playing a song. We had a bunch of videotapes banked, but they were in order. And right. I just said to the AD, what's our longest tape? Roll our longest tape. It was like three minutes and 30 seconds. I don't care if it's out of order. Just roll it. Yeah. That gave us three minutes and 30 seconds to somehow work with her. Mm-hmm. Her therapist went out there, convinced her to come off stage. We reset and once again went on with the show. And the amazing part to me was Stephen, who I had just done the Emmys with about a month prior, so we had a really good relationship, came back to me because I got I, I got to do something. Like, I can't let it end yeah. like that. I said, what do you want to do? He's like, put her out in, a, in the audience, and I'll go out and talk to her in the audience and uh, I'll invite her on the show or something. Just, like, set it up for me. Yeah. I said, okay. So we uh, we put her out in the audience, and he went out and kneeled in the aisle next to her and talked to her and said, just want you to know that was not her fault. It was our fault. John Stewart came out and said, this is what happens when you have an idiot for a host, meaning John. <laughs> like, everyone <laughs> took the blame on themselves, yeah. including me. I should, You know, I, I share some of that blame. And uh, they turned it into a really sweet, warm moment. And yeah. Stephen did invite her on his show. I don't know if that happened yet. Yeah. But the, the thing to me was I had invited some friends there who had an autistic son. And, uh, like, the show was over. I was drained from, like, just doing a show completely out of order. I have no right. idea if we even got on the air. And I came out and I was, like, wiped. And they're like, you know, you have no idea how great that was, what you did with her. And I said, what? And they're like... That's what happens every day. That's real life. And it goes back to what I said before. Before is like human touching humanity, emotion, yeah. heart. Not that we planned it that way and it probably not the way we wanted it to come across. But Yeah. And as I've mentioned before, those things, if they're honest, right. can work. The young woman who spoke at the March for Our Lives down in D.C., got into her speech. It just got to her. She turned around and hurled. And I was standing on the side. I can guarantee you, yes, she did. And then she just came back and just had this little impish look on her face. And she said, I just hurled on international TV. (laughs) The place went nuts. And I think if it's honest and if it's good intentioned, audiences will work with you. Audiences will give you slack. And even though, like you said before, so much of it is staged, when you have those little flashes of just real people. It really works. Yeah, I'll say this also about the Tony Awards. Yeah. Um, we really feel that, forgetting one speech this year, right. um, that it is the speeches are what make award shows. We do a great job of performance and everything else. But if you listen or look to speeches from the Tony Award people, that's the heart. That's yeah. the emotion. And and no one goes out there really on the Tonys and thanks their agent and thanks their manager. They really say something. Yeah. And um, theater people are good at that. Yeah, exactly. Theater people. My favorite this year, I think, was Andrew Garfield. He was great. Who just gave a charming little heartfelt speech and had that nice little thing about let's buy a cake for each other. Right. Just a wonderful little note. And that's, you know, that's the funny thing about speeches. Everyone comes in, especially at the conventions, and they want more time. Uh, and I say, you know what? That's not what you need. 
You need that moment, that little piece that people are going to remember because it hits both their emotions and their intellect at the same time. That's what yeah. works. He set the tone for the night, and it's funny you talk about time because it's not only speeches, but every performance on any award show, not just the Tonys, they want, how much time do I have? How much time do I have? And you know what? I've done the Super Bowl halftime with Bruce Springsteen, Bruno Mars, Justin Timberlake, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, et cetera, et cetera, and they have 12 minutes, right? right. Now, every one of them has 30 minutes of hits and two hours of concerts when they're on the road. But if they can figure out how to get their career down to 12 minutes, you can make a speech in 90 seconds. I would think so. I would think so. As we start to wrap this up, any one piece of advice, any one warning, the one thing you want in these people's head is they start to put that fundraiser together, put that rally together. Do we go back yeah. where you started? Well, what's I, the point? What's the point? But I also think it's okay to say no. Like it's okay on many levels to say no. It's okay to say I can't do that with the money we have, but I can do this. You know, I, it's okay to say no if someone says, you know, I'll, I'll only be on your show if I can have 22 dancers. No, you know, <laughs> it, it's okay. As long as you say it in an intelligent way yeah. and you have reason for saying no and you have the experience to back up and why it doesn't fit in your show. Yeah. You know, I, I've been on, on tons of things where people are like, I want to come in and do this. And you're like, that's not what our show is. Like yeah. you're in, you're actually in the wrong show if that's what you want to do. <laughs> right. What's the impact from your perspective of the Twitter and the cell phones and all that stuff? In the audience. Wow, that's a that's a huge question because I have a because you got phone. one right there. I have a flip phone. I have no. I'm not on any <laughs> social media, and that's, it's funny. That, that's why you're still sane, my friend. <laughs> I know. You know, if you went, I, I saw Springsteen on Broadway this year, and they're very adamant about no pictures, no this, no that, and Bruce will pose for a picture at the end, right? And if you go, it's so distracting at a Broadway show when someone has a, a camera or whatever. I've been to Bruno shows where he like literally has stopped the show and said, you're here to enjoy me. Stop <laughs> filming me and watch me. Yeah. Um, and I, I read something years ago when my kids were young that said, don't experience your kid's life through the lens of a camera. Ex you know, have yeah. the experience. And so on the flip side, I have very little footage of my children. <laughs> right, because we're the ones who take the damn picture. <laughs> right. No, but I have no pictures of them because I go oh. and I experience their life. Oh. And I don't have a lot of pictures of them. So I'm kind of anti all that stuff. Now, on the flip side, most of my clients will ask, how do we get this out on social media? How many Twitter followers do they right. have? Blah, blah, blah. So it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, I don't have a good answer for you. I think there are times that it's appropriate. Obviously, if you're a sporting event, Super Bowl, everyone's yeah. got a camera out, not much you can do about it. Um, and it's funny because you have to react to that. Um, yeah. This year at the Democratic Convention, we actually did a card stunt at the end in the upper decks where yep. we did a – and we, we've done them in Super Bowls. And you're always worried, are people going to actually do it or are they going to try and <laughs> film what you're doing so they can't hold up their <laughs> right. own card? And it's, it's a long discussion Yeah. because people aren't engaged uh, the way you want them to be. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And you have been listening to Ricky Kirshner and Michael Sheehan, and you have been listening to Politics as Unusual. Don't forget, today's episode of Politics as Unusual was brought to you by our sponsor, FedEx. 
It's affordable. It's fast. It's our sponsor. And be sure to catch us next week when we'll be talking about actors and actresses portraying presidents and vice presidents of the United States, both real and fictional. And we'll be doing that with Kate Burton, who you probably better know as the very scary Sally Langston in Scandal. All of us who've played presidents or vice presidents or close to the presidents, you know, it's a very, you have to find the humanity, but you also have to know that this is kind of a mythic role, but you have to always get back to who the human being is. And it'll all be here on Politics As Unusual.